0: Good morning, my name is Daniel Foster. Our gathering scripture today comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as promised in the writings of Moses and prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. This is the word of the Lord. Hey Grace242, there is a monument outside of Stotterheim, Germany called the Luther Stone. This monument commemorates the lightning strike that drove Luther out of law school and into the monastery. As a law student, Martin Luther was traveling on a hot summer day when a thunderstorm kicked up. Lightning struck nearby, prompting Luther to cry out, Help me Saint Anne, I shall become a monk! Two weeks later, Luther joined the Augustinian order in Erfurt, Germany. As a now former student of law, Luther was obsessed with law. And now, in becoming a monk, Luther became obsessed with God's law, obsession to the point of doing everything he possibly could to achieve the standards of God's law in his life. Luther committed himself to doing everything in his power to fulfill God's requirements for entrance into heaven. Of all the monastic orders, Luther chose the Augustinians in Erfurt precisely because they were known for their rigor and austerity. Reflecting back on this moment in his life, Luther said that, if anyone was ever going to make it to heaven through becoming a monk, it was I. And so began Luther's life of rigor, attempting to achieve fulfillment of God's law. In the confessional booth, Luther would go on and on for hours confessing everything he could rack his brain for. Luther's confessions became so long and his list of sins so lengthy that it drove the priests to the point of frustratingly telling Luther to confine his confessions to only the bigger, more egregious sins. Come back when you have something big to confess, Brother Luther, they would say. In 1518, Luther experienced one of the greatest joys of his life. He was chosen to represent his monastery at a church business meeting in Rome. Some speculate that part of the reason Luther was chosen to make the trip was to give the priests a break from Luther's endless confessions. Upon arriving in Rome, Luther visited the Scala Sancta, or Holy Stairs. It is believed that these stairs had been climbed by the Lord Jesus himself. Supposedly, these are the same stairs that ascended to Pilate's palace where the words, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! were shouted by the crowds. The steps are believed to have been dismantled in Jerusalem and transported to Rome in the 4th century by Saint Helena, the mother of Emperor Constantine. Luther climbed these stairs on his knees, saying the Our Father at each step, believing that, as he did so, his grandfather's time in purgatory was being reduced with each step climbed. Today, you can still visit the stairs. Back in 2019, the wood that preserved the steps was removed, exposing the original marble for the first time in 300 years. Even today there is a Roman Catholic belief that each step climbed on one's knees can remove time from a purgatory sentence. But even Luther's trip to Rome could not satisfy Luther's personal obsession with achieving the fulfillment of God's law in his life and earning a spot in heaven. Even when Luther arrived to the top of the stairs, with the coolness of the marble still registering in his knees, Luther wondered to himself, is any of what the church says about purgatory and time relieved true? Is any of this real? No matter what Luther did to try to earn his spot in heaven and achieve fulfillment of God's law in his life, it was never enough. Even after performing all the rituals, Luther still never felt like he had earned his spot in eternity. Turn with me to our scripture reading today in Romans chapter 3. And we're going to begin with verse 23 because I think that as Luther climbed those stairs on his knees while saying the Our Father, and when he arrived at the top, he wondered to himself, does any of this have any merit at all? Is any of this true? I think Luther had a deep sense for Romans 3.23 when he arrived to the top of those stairs. Let's read Romans 3.23. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all fall short of the standards that God has for us. We all fall short of achieving satisfaction of God's law in our life. Luther felt this despite joining the most rigorous monastic order Despite confessing for hours, despite climbing the stairs in Rome, despite performing all the rituals, it was never enough. He still fell short. What Luther would discover five years after his trip to Rome is that salvation cannot be earned. Salvation cannot be earned by ritual. There is no amount of ritualistic piety that can earn salvation. Salvation cannot be earned. But if salvation cannot be earned and if no amount of ritualistic piety can earn one salvation then how does salvation come well let's go back to romans chapter 3 and we'll begin with our scripture reading in verse 21 but now god has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of moses and the prophets long ago what verse 21 is telling us is that You are not saved by keeping the requirements of God's law. You can't even keep the requirements of God's law anyway, which is what Luther discovered and what Romans 3.23 tells us. All of us fall short of keeping the requirements of God's law. So you are not saved by keeping the requirements of God's law because keeping that law is an impossibility because of sin. Rather, the Old Testament, the prophets... The writings of Moses foreshadow and point to a greater promise. They point to the way of salvation. And what is that way of salvation? Let's read Romans 3 verse 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. The way to be saved is having faith in Jesus Christ. No amount of ritual or rigorous adherence to God's law can earn someone salvation. Even Luther, pious as he was, rigorous as he was in adhering to God's law, still knew deep within his spirit Romans 3.23, and that is that we've all fallen short. We are all sinful. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation comes not by ritual, and our performance in trying to keep God's law. Salvation does not come by ritual. Salvation comes by faith and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Reformed theology contains within it five pillars that we term the five solas. These five pillars came out of the Reformation. Sola is a Latin word meaning alone. The five solas are sola scriptura meaning scripture alone, Sola fide, meaning faith alone. Sola gratia, meaning grace alone. Soli Deo Gloria, meaning to the glory of God alone. And the one we're focusing on today is Solus Christus, meaning Christ alone. Salvation comes through Solus Christus. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Luther had a deep sense in his spirit that no matter how ritualistic he was, no matter how strictly he adhered to all of the rituals of the religion, he could never earn salvation. He could never do enough. He could never perform enough to achieve the satisfaction of God's law in his life. He could never perform enough rituals to stand as one in right standing before the Lord. He could never earn salvation. That's because the only way to salvation is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The only way to salvation is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said this himself. Look at John 14, verse six. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It is through Christ alone that we are saved. As reformers, it is through solus Christus that we are saved. It is through Christ alone that we are saved. It is by Him only that we come to the Father. It is through a relationship with Jesus, Solus Christus, Christ alone, that we are saved. Now, I'd like to place a sub-bullet under Solus Christus called double imputation. Now, that's a big theological word I know. Imputation means to credit to someone's account. Recently Morgan and I got new phones because our carrier was running a pretty decent deal for new customers. And just as a quick digression, you ever notice how phone carriers seem to give all the best deals to new customers? Whatever happened to Current customer loyalty, but anyway, I digress. Morgan and I got new phones, and the deal was something like, if you traded in your old phone, they would give you $700. Now, I say that, they would give you $700. They really didn't give you $700. What happened was, is they had this whole process where you mailed your old phone into them, and then it would go through a processing process that took way longer than it ought to but then they would tell you congratulations you know your phone has been processed and now your discount is going to be credited to your account so they did not give us A $700 check. That would have been nice, wouldn't it have? If they just gave us, here's $700 for doing this. No, instead what they're doing is crediting that $700 to our account over the course of the next three years. So we're getting like $19 off per month or something like that. They didn't give us $700. They're crediting it to our account. Imputation means to credit to someone's account. So double imputation means a two-way crediting. The first of the ways is that when we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, our sins are credited to Jesus's account. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus becomes sinful. Our sins are credited to Jesus. Our sins are removed from our accounts, credited to Jesus's account, and then are punished and paid for when Jesus dies on the cross. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll read verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Our sin is credited to Jesus's account, and is therefore punished and done away with, then, when Jesus dies on the cross. Look at how Colossians 2 verse 14 explains this crediting. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away, how? By nailing it to the cross. In our scripture reading today, verse 21 said that salvation was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. The prophet Isaiah hints at the imputation of our sin to Christ in Isaiah 53 verse 10. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands." It was God's good plan to crush his son because in doing so, he dealt with our sin that had been credited to Jesus' account. Luther spent his early life keenly aware of the debt of sin in his account. And therefore, he spent much of his life trying to deal with that debt of sin in his account by undergoing these rituals. One of them being confession. He would go into the confessional booth and he would rack his brain for every little infraction because he didn't want to leave that booth worrying that some unconfessed infraction still lied in the debt of the sin of his account. And so he'd go into that booth and say, Father, I'm sorry, last night I kept my light on five minutes after lights out. Father, yesterday I had one incendiary thought up against my brother Thomas. Father, yesterday I stubbed my toe against the corner of the wall and for one split second I thought a cursed word in my head. He would go on and on trying to undergo these rituals in order to deal with the debt of sin in his account. Luther had not yet understood that when we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, all of that sin and all of that debt is credited to Jesus' account and then is paid for and done away with when Jesus dies on the cross. Now if taking our sin into Jesus's account and then paying for it by His death on the cross was the only thing that was necessary, then Jesus could have come straight to this earth as a fully grown man, gone straight to the cross, risen three days later, ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand of the Father. But yet that's not what happens. Instead, Jesus comes and is born as a baby, and He grows up under His parents' roof, and then He conducts His earthly ministry, calling His disciples, preaching, teaching, performing miracles, traveling. He does all of this in addition to his work on the cross and thereafter. Why? Well, this brings us to the second part of double imputation. When we come into relationship with Jesus, our sin is credited to Jesus' account. But additionally, Jesus' righteousness is credited to us. Our sin is credited to Jesus, but Jesus's right standing with God is credited back to us. This is why Jesus lived an earthly life. He lived a perfect, sin-free life in order to fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law. He lived a life of perfect right standing with God and it is therefore Jesus' right standing with God that is credited back to us when we come into a saving relationship with Him. Look at Romans 8 and we'll read verses 3-4 to but we'll start with verse 3. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Verse 3 gives us the first part of double imputation. Our sins are credited to Jesus' account. But now, let's look at verse 4. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit." God did this so that the requirements of His law would be satisfied in His Son Jesus. We can't satisfy those requirements because of our sin, but Jesus satisfied those requirements when He lived the perfect life. Jesus satisfied those requirements of God's law when He lived the life that we were created to live in Genesis 1, But all of us fail to live because of Genesis 3. Now turn to Matthew 3 and we'll read verses 13 to 15. And as you're turning there, let me ask us a question. Why was Jesus baptized? Have you ever thought to wonder why a perfect, sinless man underwent a sacrament that symbolizes the washing away of sin? Why did a sinless man have to undergo something that symbolizes the washing of sin away? Look at what Jesus says to John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verses 13 to 15. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said, so why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed baptize Him. Verse 15 in the ESV is rendered, It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to this earth not only to take on our sin, but to fulfill God's requirement of a life lived in perfect obedience and perfect right standing to Him. And only Jesus does this. Now go back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. And this time as we read this verse, look for the second part of double imputation. This time as we read, look for Christ's righteousness being credited back to us. And this time we'll read out of the ESV. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin is credited to Jesus' account and punished on the cross, And Jesus' righteousness is credited to us. As a former student of law, Luther was obsessed with God's law. And he was haunted by Romans 3 verse 10. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. And Luther's response was to double down on the treadmill of rituals, trying to earn right standing with God. But the more Luther tried to achieve satisfaction of God's law, the further from God he felt. Luther lived the way he did because he didn't truly know Christ at this point in his life. He was so wrapped up in rituals that Luther didn't know a relationship with Jesus. So unknown was a relationship with Jesus to Luther that one time he had an outburst saying, love God, sometimes I hate Him. Who can fulfill the requirements of a holy God? Luther's early life shows us that salvation is not about undergoing rituals in an attempt to earn right standing with God. We can't even do that as Romans tells us. All of us have fallen short of God's requirements. There is no way that any amount of ritual or actions on our part will achieve satisfaction of God's holy requirements for us. The life of faith is solus Christus. The life of faith is Christ alone. He's the one who lived a perfect sinless, righteous life. He's the one who bore our sin on the cross. He's the one who paid our debt. The life of faith then is not performing rituals to try to earn favor with God. The life of faith is knowing Christ. The life of faith is Christ alone. See you next time, Grace 242.